0: Hey, this is Toro Imoa, and you're listening to KUCI in Irvine.
1: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Coming to you from the KUCI headquarters in sunny Irvine, California, it's the talk show formerly known as Half Past Five with Paxton Wright. Tonight's guest, author behind the upcoming books, The Flowing Subject, Video Games and the Ideology of Play, and Intelligent Visions, The Platform Cultures of Intellivision, it's media historian and UCI professor Braxton Soderman, featuring music, From the Mattel Electronics and Television! Now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Paxton Wright! You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is the talk show formerly known as Half Past Five. I'm Paxton Wright. Your name is Kyle. I don't know that that last part is true, but if it is, it's pretty cool that I said that. Anyway, I'm going to keep this intro really brief because we got a whole bunch of show for you, and and this one did run a little bit on the long side, so you get to hear less of me ranting at you, and a little more of me having a one-on-one time with my guest, who has a very similar name to me, and that was a silly coincidence that we acknowledge right at the top of the episode, because how could we not? You don't meet a lot of other people who about 90% of their name is Axton. It's a weird thing that rarely happens. I don't know that it's ever happened to me before, but it happened this time. It's pretty wacky. Anyway, I said I'd keep this short and I lied. Uh, Remember, if you want to reach out to me with any questions, comments, inquiries, insults, and or or advice, inquiries is not a word, but you you, you see what I'm getting at, Uh, you can shoot me an email at Paxton Wright at KUCI.org That's P-A-X-T-O-N-W-R-I-G-H-T at kucih And you can also check out the podcast of this show uh, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify at KUCI colon the talk show formerly known as Half Past Five. And should be a pretty wet and wild good time. Especially if you miss any of these episodes, you can catch up on them digitally. So now you have no excuse. <laughs> anyway, uh that's about it for me how are you guys doing i hope you're doing good especially you kyle anyway enjoy the show have a few laughs maybe you'll learn something i think you will because this was a pretty informative episode especially if you're curious about retro video game consoles that time more or less forgot uh we we got a whole lot for you then so keep it right there keep that patootie locked in your car seat and give a listen to this interview between me paxton wright and braxton soderman all right All right. so i'm wondering do i just get into the do i do i do i address the elephant in the room now yes your name is braxton yes my name is paxton and no as far as i'm concerned you are not my waluigi come here to ruin my day and thwart any plans I have
0: yes well we just started talking so we'll have to wait and see but yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay well then I'm gonna I'm gonna inch back just a little bit (laughs) um and I'm bracing to run for the door if need be (laughs) but anyhow Braxton how are you doing today
0: I'm doing wonderful yeah thank you for having me on the show it's great to be here it's a pleasure to talk to you yeah
1: well uh it's it's a it's a pleasure to have you on uh, so we're here today to talk, as I've said in the intro already, which has not been recorded, but as I will say in the <laughs> intro, uh, soon enough, you were here to talk today about two of your, uh, books that are in, in development right now, right, um, right. Mm-hmm. both yeah. of which center on a, on a core same theme of video games, but sort of different, um, I guess one is more of a historical allegory not allegories, the wrong wrong word, <laughs> historical, like I guess, retrospective uh-huh. on one aspect of video games. And one is more of a, I guess, a, a psychological analyzation. Mm-hmm. Um, am, I, am I correct in that or is that?
0: Um, one of them is more of like a history about a particular game system or platform, the Intellivision system made by Mattel Electronics. In the late seventies and early eighties. So that's more of a history, I suppose. And the other one is more of an intellectual history, looking at a key concept in game studies that's about a psychological experience when you play the play a video game, yeah. Right. So but it's slight there's still history involved in that that I'm looking at, but it's also looking at a lot of video games that try to produce this experience. Sure. Yeah. So before we before we get into either of those cuz I
1: do want to talk about both books cool. quite extensively yeah. uh, I want to sort of talk a bit uh, as as we do on the show about you first. <laughs> so so we're by the way first another thing we should we should address right away right. Yeah. Because I had another professor on the show about a month and a half ago. Should I be calling you Professor Soderman? Should I call you Braxton for the sake of this interview? What's oh, no,
0: no, no. You can just call me Braxton, for uh, sure. For all sure.
1: right, yeah. all right. That's, uh, that's a that's a good vibe you're bringing to the table, yeah, Braxton. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Um, I
0: haven't published the two books yet, so, you know, the professorship, you know, comes later. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure. But, yeah, so we're, I guess we'll just start with a very basic question. Uh, where'd you grow up?
0: Uh, well, I grew up in Minneapolis, in the suburbs of Minneapolis. Yeah, so Minnesota boy, yeah, mm. like, mm-hmm. right.
1: Oh yeah. Um, sorry, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, actually, my entire immediate family lived in Minneapolis for a while before I was born. Oh um, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, out around there. So that was in the uh, late '70s, early '80s. You're right. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so in that time, you were, were you something of? Because now that considering the field you're in currently, were you something of? I guess what one would label a quote unquote indoor kid or did, did did that come later what was the uh what was the kind of immediate pull towards media and video games?
0: yeah, well, you know you you hit the nail on the head there with the indoor kid because it's Minnesota it's six months out of the year it's brutally cold, you know right, and so you spend a lot of time indoors and uh, I think that is probably a major reason why I played a lot of video games because when you're growing up that was just something to do in the uh, mostly the early 80s when I played when it's brutally cold outside and you could sit around the television and play, friends would get dropped off and you, you'd played games, yeah. So. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. And it was, so it was consoles like of course television, like yeah. we talked about and then of course Atari 2600, the mm-hmm. ColecoVision. Mm-hmm. Were those all part of your childhood or was... Because I feel like even to this day, people are kind of um, more for fiscal reasons than anything else, but people tend to generally tend to sort of be in one camp per yeah. console generation. Yeah. So yeah. was it in television for you or yeah. what was the...
0: Yeah, well, again, you're exactly right. I mean, because of financial reasons, you know, things were really expensive back then. The original Intellivision was $249 or $299 when it first came out, which is a huge amount of money back then. And so you either had a, a Atari or an Intellivision. Nobody had both. I didn't have any friends that had both. Right. And so that's kind of something we talk about in the book, this rivalry between the two, Atari and Intellivision. And you kind of had camps where some people were Intellivision people and some people were uh, were Atari people. And and I don't know, you, you said that that still happens today, but I feel like people sometimes have an Xbox and a Sony PlayStation. It's not so rare to just have one, but you're right. There's still that financial hump you have to get over.
1: Right. I mean, it's like outside of finances, it's the kind of thing where... If every console cost five bucks, mm-hmm. everyone would come home with a PlayStation, an Xbox, a Switch, mm-hmm. and a PC. Yeah, we yeah. just we just cover all bases. Right. Um. But of course, we don't live in uh, uh, Babylon. Um. That's <laughs> weird. We're not. We're not blessed to have those. Um. Those luxuries. But even so, yeah, I feel like maybe there's less of a tribalistic nature to it. I feel like mm-hmm. that kind of maybe peaked around the at least from my perspective, it probably peaked around the Nintendo and Sega Wars of the 90s uh, primarily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But was that kind of tribalism of like... No, what you're what you're working with is weak right now. This is In television's where it's at. Atari's where it's at. Was that like a thing or was it more just total monetary thing? Like, Oh, you have an Atari? That's cool. I have an Intellivision.
0: <laughs> no, no. I mean it was it was definitely an intense battle between the two. I mean, Intellivision was uh, more sophisticated than the Atari for sure in many different ways and had better games, had better realistic graphics, you know, that was one of their selling points. they were more realistic and looked better in, in some of the early TV commercials actually played off comparisons directly between them. Like, look at a Atari game, look at an Intellivision game, and Intellivision's much better, you know. And the Intellivision had more memory capacity, so you could have a football game where you called multiple different plays. You know, there was a lot more strategy. Even the name, uh, television, intelligent television, right? They played on this whole idea of sophistication, intelligence, complexity. They wanted their games to be something that you could play again and again and again and again and again. Where Atari was seen as something that was more arcade, more fast, speedy, fun, uh, exciting kind of games. But the problem was Atari sold. 20 million consoles you know or more than that I don't know the, the exact numbers where Intellivision over a period of 5 years only sold a little less than 3 million or around 3 million so there weren't as many televisions around it was mostly an Atari world and most kids had the Atari and even today they remember Atari nobody remembers the Intellivision but everybody wears Atari t-shirts right so.
1: yeah and that's that is something that I think at least when I was when I was doing my research um, you know it seemed to me like a uh, one one common thing I was I was seeing a lot of was that yeah and television had hugely uh, more advanced graphical and just overall technical capabilities mm-hmm. than the Atari but what the Atari had going for it were a slightly cheaper price tag it looked like just yes, slightly yes. and also a Let's face it. A, I mean, a, a, like an objectively better controller. <laughs> <laughs> for for those who aren't aware, yeah, the, the television controller. If you want to actually just sort of field that one, kind of <laughs> <laughs> what that beast was.
0: Yeah, the the controller was a was a strange kind of thing. If you can imagine looking at a telephone, I suppose, with a, a punch buttons that had twelve different buttons that were arrayed array like an old uh, cord telephone, right? Um, a push button one, not a rotary one. And uh, it had a disc in it that you could press around and go in 16 different directions. Atari had a joystick that could only go in 8 directions, so television controller had more directional sophistication than the Atari, right? Um, But the disc was kind of weird to operate, and then these buttons, there were a couple buttons on the side that you pressed with your thumbs, and they were very hard to press, so it was a very strange kind of uh, device. You know, you don't see it today. Right. Actually, when you look back at its influence, like with the, I, what was it? Oh, not the, the, uh, not the, the, sorry, um, you know, the music, iPod. Oh, the, I- the iPod. Yeah, the iPod. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> mean, one yeah, of the of most important yeah. technological <laughs> right. advancements yeah, of Yeah, it. but I, I had a shuffle, so I was like, you know, it was coming to my brain right. to say that. But, Ro- no, of course. But yeah. this kind of rotary disc type thing, you know, are actually more popular today. So it, it actually historically had some influence on later interface technology.
1: Yeah, and I want to get into that too in a little okay. bit about the sort of what influence it, it has had in mm-hmm. the present day. But it also... Another thing, it seemed to me anyway, that that Atari had over Intellivision was... It seemed like Intellivision was producing more advanced versions of Atari games, Mm -hmm. but the Atari games always came first. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, for instance, you know, Intellivision kind of had its own take on Frogger, Mm -hmm. on... um, What was it? Like Frog Jump? The one where you're jumping from the lily pads to get the the flies? I don't know. I went with two Frog games (laughs) right off the bat. But there there was others. But there was uh, uh, Pac-Man, which... For better or for worse, Atari did have first. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, yeah. For worse, if you yeah. know anything about the Atari Pac Man. Yeah, uh, it's very bad. <laughs> but it was, yes,
0: blinking Ghosts and yeah, the multiplexing, it was bad. Yeah. Yeah,
1: but it, was, it would sort of come hot off the heels of these Atari games mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. sort of do them up right. Mm-hmm. It's It seemed to me, anyways.
0: I don't know. I think that that Atari had some big hits, you know, uh, like Pac-Man or Space Invaders, right? Was was huge, and there was a lot of cloning of games that would go on. Where in television, a lot of what we found um, was that yeah, they would see a game like Atari at uh, these shows, like the Consumer Electronic shows, were these big events that would happen twice a year, and so in the late '70s and early '80s, Mattel Electronics who made the Intel television would go to the consumer electronic shows and see games that Atari was making like an Asteroids version or something and then back in house they would say oh, uh, we need you, this, you know, ask a programmer, we need you to make a version of this, you know, or we need you to make that, you know, Atari this, but it can't be exactly alike because they were always afraid of being sued, you know. Um, so there's a, there's stories about the Atari people seeing some of the Intellivision games at these consumer electronics uh, shows and saying, oh, no, you can't do that, you know, that's too close to our version, so. Right. Yeah.
1: It was a lot more bloodthirsty at the time, and is that largely because of the the newness of the technology. And people didn't really know at the time if it was going to have a lot of staying power or if it was going to be a fad, especially with with the crash of, what was it, 83, 84? um, Mm -hmm. You know, that that was something that made a lot of people think, oh, video games were just a fun little couple-year...
0: Yeah, Uh, nobody, I mean, there were a lot of visionaries who knew that this was the future and knew that games would not go away, um, that the market would really be there. But you're right, a lot of people thought that this was maybe a fad or something. And one of the interesting things we discovered, right, is that the Mattel Electronics comes from Mattel Toys. They were a toy company, Mattel, right, who kind of got into electronics and making game systems. um, And, but the whole toy industry is based on fads, right? you know, uh, Cabbage Patch dolls or or whatever that's around for a little while or a season or two seasons, they would talk about in the toy industry. You know, if you got two kind of years out of a product, you were happy, right? Because it went in these big cycles. I mean, there's some products that last a long time like Barbie or Hot Wheels from Mattel. So there are things like that. But uh, you're right. So people thought video games would be a fad, too. Why wouldn't it just follow the cycle of the toy industry? And then it would, you know, people would get bored of it or something like that.
1: well, it's interesting you mentioned that because my mom used to actually work for Mattel um, oh, wow. back in the late '90s. Oh wow! Yeah, Mattel <laughs> interview interview. Yeah. yeah, I know it was, but yeah, she used to she used to work at Mattel, and uh, I remember yeah because it was something that you know to use the word again bloodthirsty to an extent uh-huh. between between companies mm-hmm. because of those fads. Mm-hmm. I remember um, the hair pulling mm-hmm. and stress that came about when um i think it was hasbro blew yeah. up with Bratz mm-hmm. in the early aughts and girls weren't buying barbies anymore they all <laughs> wanted Bratz, and it was all about like how can we how can we capitalize on brats how do, how do we do that yep, yep. and like mattel shot back with something called like i think it's called like my scene or uh-huh, something uh-huh. it was the same basic idea as Bratz, yeah. and and so th- that's something that has pervaded throughout the industry throughout mm. that industry but you're right it seems like it existed, and to a much lesser extent still exists a little bit in gaming, but it seems like something that now that people know it is a medium that's here to stay that is constantly about, I guess, reinventing the wheel, yeah. you could say, a little bit. There's much more room for people to explore, Yeah, and much less um, heated competition. Am I, am I right about that, or...?
0: Yeah, I think today, obviously, things are a lot different. Um, And if you're going to succeed with a game, uh, well, there's different models depending if it's indie production or mainstream games. I study mostly indie games, not so much the mainstream industry and contemporary video games. Uh, But in the indie space, if you have great gameplay, great idea, high production values, that's what really makes your game soar, I suppose. Then something like competitive, bloodthirsty competition with other kinds of studios or something like that that. Right. But, but back in the day, I'm um, bloodthirsty was what it was about. I mean, you have to realize within television when it came out, Atari already had a huge market share, right? Uh, because of delays in the production of the Intellivision. And so they had pumped in a ton of money into marketing, which was extremely aggressive and extremely attacking Atari, right? It, Atari complained to the television stations about commercials that Mattel was running. And this was kind of new. I mean, this is something we're researching a little bit this kind of this kind of brutal com- competitiveness between two things like you saw it like you already said in, in Nintendo Sega later on and ironically you know one of the people or a couple of the people we've interviewed actually worked at Mattel Electronics um, before they went on to Sega the ones that came up with these aggressive campaigns where they fought against Nintendo right so it has its historical roots in the Atari versus Intellivision Wars right and Television went straight for the jugular with these commercials putting Atari uh, games on a television and Intellivision games on another television um, and saying, compare for yourself. Once you compare, you'll know the difference. And and it was rare to put your competitor's product on the television. You weren't supposed to show your competitor's product. You weren't supposed to talk about it. But here it was, you know, just because television was a superior system. So the idea was let, let the consumers see this. You know, they'll see it automatically when you show them the difference between the two. But that did not go well with Atari. The competition and rivalry was intense. Indeed, bloodthirsty.
1: And so why do you think it was ultimately that Atari and again to a lesser extent but it was you know also a competitor at the time like things like ColecoVision mm-hmm. like why do you think it is that they have not just stood the test of time but why do you think that they came out on top even then I mean because Intellivision was a little pricier but not dramatically more than Atari already was mm-hmm. with that advanced uh, hardware Why do you think it was that people still just gravitated more towards Atari from the get-go?
0: It's probably a very complex question. One of them, the answer is just uh, time-wise. They came out with their system in 1977. They were ahead of the game, so they, uh, and it was a great system then, um, and they sold a lot of them. And so, like we talked about before, you know, a home isn't necessarily going to buy a new two hundred dollar video game system if you already had an Atari. So they had already entered the market in a way where they had a commanding presence by the time that in television arrived and. Really, 1980. Um, they test marketed in 1979, but then in 1980, and so they were behind from the get-go, and. One of the big things that we've seen, too, is that it was the library of games. How many games you had was really important for advertising and marketing and other reasons. And so Atari had a lot of games initially, and so Intellivision couldn't really compete. So if a consumer went to Sears or whatever, the Atari had a ton of games, and the Intellivision, you know, was constantly trying to build up its library so it can compete with Atari. And it's funny. There's like to talk about this bloodthirstiness, you know, idea. Uh, eventually, uh, Intellivision and Mattel Electronics developed what they called a system changer, and this was a module that you could purchase. I forget what the price was, maybe eighty-nine, ninety-nine, or something, and plug it into the Intellivision console, and it would play Atari Twenty-six Hundred games, right? Yeah.
1: That was legal or w- Oh,
0: I you know that's you know this is this is the wild west right. you know what i mean <laughs> where cloning is going on yeah literally this kind of system was they you know they claimed that oh with you plug this in and and you could play it through this Intel the Intellivision system, um, but it was just a clone of the Atari using off the off the shelf chips right. They just built an Atari that you could plug in the Intellivision and then it would it would just bypass the Intellivision's hardware to go straight to the interface to the television. So basically, it was an Atari 2600 that could plug into the Intellivision and play. But they sold it you know saying that now Intellivision has the biggest library. We have all these Intellivision games plus we have all the Atari 2600 How games.
1: How beautifully sinister <laughs> and unethical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, and I mean, it just, I mean, if, if we're just still focusing on the, the, the technology of it, the you bring up, um, you know, that kind of peripheral. Um, Intellivision had a few pretty revolutionary peripherals. Probably the, the biggest one would be the Voice, Yeah. Which, it was basically a, a voice modulator. No, modulator is the wrong word, but it was it would allow for your, for certain games to actually have some degree of, I guess you could call it voice acting, a very primitive yeah, version of voice yeah. acting within the
0: game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, B-17 bombers. Right. I think the, yeah, oh. there's. A, yeah, they had IntelliVoice, um, uh, which was an amazing thing, and really that came about because GI, which is General Instrument, was a company that made the chips for IntelliVision, and Mattel bought the chips from them, and they had advanced speech chips. They had these chips that they had produced. And, you know, so it was kind of an option of they were already working with G.I. So, you know, you could do this. What can we do with this chip? Oh, we can create this module for Intellivision games. Right. And so it was it was coming from G.I. in that sense. But yeah, I mean, that was amazing. You know, I had one of those. I was a kid. I remember getting one of those and it was just you could plug in these games and they talk, you know, the voices. You know, we're pretty good, and, right. and Mattel would hire voice actors uh, to do these kind of things, and then they'd get highly digitized. and And like I said, we're still learning about that process, but it was it was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, and I think it's. I mean, you mentioned the the voice acting too, which is mm-hmm. like, because even then. You know, you you mentioned the the G seventeen bomber or whatever, mm-hmm. but like the that that was in a that had like a southern like cowboy accent, yeah. like which to hear that especially because even like I think Atari, if I'm not mistaken, did do a little bit. Or maybe it was Calico did a little bit of kind of voice emulation. I don't mm-hmm. know what I don't know what the right verb is. Yeah, uh,
0: synthesize. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. But it was mm-hmm.
1: yeah, it was a lot more. Still very impressive at the time, but uh, had a lot less range to it and a mm-hmm. lot less um could be done with it, it was a lot more like, you know, kind of (laughs) uh, straight like this, Um, (laughs) and (laughs) that's the best I can give of an an Atari voice, but um, yeah, so I mean, even then in almost every respect, it really did seem like it was a more advanced console, I guess yeah, it just ultimately came too late to the mm. playing field to really get it in edgewise. wise.
0: Uh yeah, it was it was a little late. It had a lot of cool kind of peripherals like the system changer and and the voice, you know, Intel voice system and and it actually was envisioned from the very beginning to be a home computer, which uh, was always kind of a problem for them because they had what they called a keyboard component. And you were supposed to take your Intellivision system and you would place it inside this larger kind of apparatus with a with keyboard on it, which would turn it into a home computer. And that was uh, ultimately a big problem for Mattel because they said that the computer keyboard was always coming, that it was always going to come out, you know, you'll have your home computer. And they sold the Intellivision, to consumers, promising them that it could be a home computer later on and then there were a lot of problems with the keyboard and it never really came out um so much and so the fcc actually there's a case against them and they had to pay ten thousand dollars a day until they had the keyboard component come out or it could have been a week i'd have to look into it but <laughs> yeah it was a lot and they had a penalty so they finally came out with a different version not the keyboard the component was more powerful but something called the ecs to attach mm-hmm. right
1: and it was around it, it was basically the ultimate financial failure Mm -hmm. of the Intellivision that sort of brought about the end of Mattel Electronics, correct? Or (laughs) it was a large part of it anyway?
0: Yeah, it almost sunk the toy company completely too. Yeah. I mean, it was, they were at huge losses and for a time, you know, people thought that Mattel was going to go under, you know, that it was going to take down Barbie. This was that's
1: that's a that's a high stakes game you're playing yeah <laughs> yeah it's a
0: high stakes game and and in fact the reason that they didn't go under completely is that they you know had to find investors after the the market crash and they lost hundreds of millions of dollars in a short period of time and and they needed to get uh, financing and and the banks were like you're toxic you know the the banks wouldn't give them any money so they had to look for investors I think from New York and on Wall Street and I don't remember the name there's there's an, some names that are important there. But, uh, but one of the the lead person that gave them a bunch of money to save Mattel was like, you know, I will not let Barbie fail. You right. know, that type thing. It was like, I'm saving Barbie <laughs> right. with this money. So, right. yeah. Huh.
1: Yeah. So that's, um, and then I guess one last thing before we sort of, uh, move on to the other book. I, I'm curious about, as you've said, you know, especially with, you know, the, the iPod, but I'm sure in many other respects, the Intellivision has gone on to, um, to influence games, game design and uh, technology on a whole in mm-hmm. a lot more ways than we might think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, one thing I really felt with when looking at the Intellivision was like looking at um, games like uh, like Microsurgeon. It was looking at games like uh, uh, Snafu with kind of the advanced graphical capabilities of them, just the, the sort of more fluid movement to them that like Atari had, they, they remind me a lot of um, a lot of modern indie games. That take that aesthetic mm-hmm. and sort of you know re- repurpose that early '80s, late '70s aesthetic mm-hmm. um, for modern hardware. Right. Um, but yeah. I- in in some respects, what what would you, how would you say it's uh, affected? <laughs> The modern day.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's many different kind of firsts you can talk about that in television had. Um, you know, it had one of the first operating systems called the Exec, which was embedded within the hardware that helped programmers. Uh, program video games, or at least gave them a bunch of code that they could use um, that would make um, programming video games easier. Uh, there was games like Utopia, which is you know one of the first kind of real-time strategy games or god games where you're building a world, you know more or less, and competing against another player for the highest points. That's been very influential. They had a baseball game uh, that came out that was actually a baseball game that was based on television sports, right? How the television sports portrayed the look and feel of baseball, like, oh, let's show the camera angle from behind the pitcher, you know, over his shoulder so you could see, or over the shoulder of the batter so you could see them hit the ball. Something that we take for granted today in, in video games, sports video games, that uh, they're simulating how it looks on television. That started with, with uh, in television as well. So there were many of those kind of early game experiments and design features that later became important to Video gaming as a whole, you right. know what I mean. The influences. There's something I study actually in my other book, which is called dynamic difficulty adjustment, and that's something where uh, computer programs keep track of uh, the difficulty level and they change it automatically according to the player.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think of. Uh, there's a ton of examples I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah. one being like up for more modern take is like Resident Evil 4. Uh-huh. And I remember mm-hmm. that was a big one that did that.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Depending on how, uh, how you do, you know, they'll change it to make it more difficult or easier for you, right. you know, according to, the, to their programs, right? But that actually began in an television game called Astro Smash, which was a huge hit and sold uh, a million copies, I think, or close to, and and that was because a programmer realized that you could give extra lives every thousand points, and you could you could make the game get faster and faster and faster. But you could also subtract points from them. Like, for example, in the game is kind of like Space Invaders. There's rocks f- f- falling from the sky. You have to shoot them with this little spaceship. And if the rocks hit the ground, then your score goes down. So if the score is going down and goes below a certain threshold, the game gets easier a little bit. You know what I mean? And they realized this. This was this was great because it wasn't an arcade. You weren't putting quarters into the machine. You know, you could play this game for thirty or forty minutes long. Um, um, which, you know, was not the arcade model or something because the di- difficulty was adjusted. So just like you say, you see it in Resident Evil now, I mean, that had its origins and in television as well. Interesting.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I guess um, before we do move on here, we should mention as well that the book is being worked on by uh, both you and uh, another professor here at, at UC Irvine. Yeah. Anthropology professor. Um Tom, I, I don't want to mess up. Bellstarf. Bellstorff, yeah. Okay, yeah. And that book is called uh, Intelligent Visions, The Platform Cultures of Intellivision. At least that's the working title, right? That's here, the right? working title, yeah. All right.
0: Yeah, well, our plan is to have that out hopefully by October 2020 because Intellivision is actually still around. That's
1: right. It had kind of a big comeback last yeah. year a little bit. Yeah. Well,
0: yeah, the, 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 the people, some of the old programmers who are in Irvine, this is also a part of our research, that they're located 10 minutes from uh, the UCI campus, right? So we've interviewed a ton of different people they have the rights to Intellivision and they're putting out a new system, a retro system called the Amico. Uh, and so in a in a, about a year, uh, we'll have another Intellivision system, right? And their idea is to kind of move into that market of bringing family gaming back, you know, around the console, having very simple games, not complex games, kind of simple controllers, a kind of rebirth of the, of the weird, wacky controller that we talked about. <laughs> right. Um, and. And games that are uh, 2D only or 2.5, no 3D complex games, no violence, you know. There's, so we'll see how it goes, you know. Um, yeah. But it's interesting.
1: It's a really interesting, noble experiment. And it's one that really could serve well, especially given that Nintendo gave it their all in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, they made bajillions of dollars yeah. off of it. But yeah. ultimately, the Wii, as far as keeping fan interest yeah. and really even keeping familial interest ended up kind of being a uh, ended up being a bit of a a flop uh-huh. this, i mean over time mm-hmm. check check a few games here and there mm-hmm. and, and peripherals like the we fit so it is kind of something because that is a gap that does need filling in the industry i think and so hopefully they can kind of be the ones to do that
0: that's their hope, you yeah. know, we're not involved in any way in that kind of what right. they're doing, and but that's definitely their hope, you know, you look at Nintendo as obviously they've been the powerhouse in family gaming and the Switch is a great console, but even the Switch has like games, Resident Evil, or it has games that are, you know, that aren't, you don't associate with like a family kind of console, right? Right. And so, they think that there's space there in the market for you know return to family or friends, social gaming and stuff. So yeah, casual gaming. We'll see.
1: And that's that's kind of the thing I was gonna say too. Yeah, is that like the Switch is at its core, it, you know, it is a great uh, family console for for right. how it how oh, it, yeah. for how it works. Yeah, but but then you think about yeah, th- like a lot of the library, like the fact that they so they're so much more open to indie games mm-hmm. than they ever have been before. And mm-hmm. like I mean, I just played. Uh, layers of fear on there which is (laughs) which I was like I'm playing this on a Nintendo console right now it's it's a bizarre thing and so yeah it is I really like and appreciate that idea of and I think probably a lot of people will hopefully that idea of a console that is that is completely focused and and maintaining that mission statement of being for the family, for the living room. Yeah, um, so. yeah, it'll,
0: it'll be a cool console. It has a lot of cool little features that they're playing around with, and they're bringing about back a bunch of Intellivision games. They're doing, you know, re, uh, whatever that remakes, you know, that right. are gonna be pretty pretty update the graphics and stuff like that. So, and, All
1: right. and awesome. And yeah, and you guys have you're still obviously working on the research end of this. It's it's not done yet, but um, yeah. you've got a total of as of right now, over seventy people that you've interviewed yeah. for this yep. book.
0: We're doing five more this week. And yeah. We're still going, we're pushing ahead and working on it every day really hard.
1: Yeah. Well great. So well uh I'm excited to read it. But uh I also want to talk a bit about the other book you're working on right now, which is again another working title at the yeah, moment. Yeah, the but bad
0: title. I'm not happy with the title, but uh, yeah.
1: it's I, I I think it um it makes a strong point <laughs> as for what you can expect with it. Okay. But uh, the flowing subject: video games and the ideology of play, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, that one's sort of m- most on the horizon. Am I correct? Um, yes.
0: Yeah, that one's uh, under contract right now at a university press. So, but that'll probably be another year until it comes out. So. Right.
1: Right. But it, that one's more or less finished at this point. Correct.
0: Uh, yeah. The draft. The yeah. It's done. It's, right. Yeah.
1: And so. If you want to just kind of get I, it, I, it, you know, it examines and critiques the concept of flow in games. Mm-hmm. If you want to, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, flow is a very weighty subject with a lot to it. But if you want to get into sort of briefly, just a brief overview yeah. of what that term flow means.
0: Yeah, well, that comes from the research of Mahali Chick sent me um, high. Thank you for pronouncing it <laughs> <that> for me. <laughs> yeah, I hope I did it right. I'm not quite sure. I should have, you know, practiced before I came. But, uh, um, uh, yeah it comes from his research and he was a very prolific scholar or sociologist from the university of chicago and wrote a popular book in nineteen ninety called flow the psychology of flow Um uh, or the f- psychology of everyday life. Well, it was, yeah, it was you know, everybody called it just flow in 1990, and uh, it was really a massively bestseller, popular book. But his research goes back to the 1960s and 1970s, where he studied. He was studying creativity, play, and the psychology of really getting involved and absorbed in a task and 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 enjoying it. Right. He was really he wanted to know what was meant by the term enjoyment. What was meant by the term fun. What did we mean by those things you know and so he came uh, and through his interviews of basketball players and surgeons and artists and dancers you know they talked about this experience where they got intensely involved in activity for hours and hours and hours or they dedicated their life to it right and even though it was challenging and difficult and took a lot of work they said it was fun and enjoyable and the hours melted away and felt like mere minutes you know and when you ask people what they loved about their lives, they talk about this experience of deep involvement. So he called this flow, and it was a native category, um, which came from you know the people called it flow. I'm going, I'm going with the flow. I'm just in the flow of things. So he studied that for many years,
1: and yeah. it's sort of about connecting that uh, that w- would you call it a philosophy? What would you? Mm-hmm. What's the what's the correct?
0: Uh, probably a psychology It's a psychological state a feeling an experience
1: and so, and so you're more connecting that Experience mm-hmm. I, I guess um, To video games And kind of the, the rewards System of yeah. them and, and kind of the, uh, the gratification That comes with I know at least I can speak for the many many hours You pour into them that suck out immediately Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. but still the the feeling of gratification that keeps you coming back and it's sort of examining that relationship correct?
0: Yeah exactly like flow has been enormously important to the history of video game design uh, because when people read about the experience of flow they're like wow that's really what it feels like when you're really involved in a game or when you're playing with children playing or something like that are completely involved in their task and um, when he studied this in the 1970s, a lot of the examples were games, like chess players, for example. And so uh, one thing that produces flow is having clear goals and clear feedback on how you're progressing towards meeting those goals, right? And these are things in video games that this is what they do, you right. know what I mean? Right. So there's a lot of crossover and people realize that flow was something that they wanted their players to experience, to be deeply involved in the game.
1: And so it makes me it makes me kind of question because of course some of the really obvious examples of a game like that would be like uh, something like Tetris, <laughs> yeah. which is you know it's just it, there's a clear mm. uh, I guess there's not a definitive end to it, but you always want to one up yourself games like that. But then there's other games that I think um, things like Fortnite even now for a more yeah. contemporary example, you know you you want to be the best on that field, you want to be the last man standing, right? Um, you want to win that three mil at the at the uh, competition yeah um but it also begs the question of games because you you mentioned that you dedicate a lot of your uh, studies to the indie sphere Mm -hmm. as well because of course indies are constantly toying with with that notion um a lot of the time anyway right and there's games of course indie games like hotline miami and things like that which are still about that that gratification that you get from overcoming a challenge, but then I think of others like uh, Have you played uh, Night in the Woods? I know
0: of it, but I, I have not played it.
1: R- okay. Or um, uh, I guess another example would be one that kind of made an impact a few years ago was like Virginia, mm-hmm. something like like games that games mm-hmm. that don't necess- mm-hmm. that are a lot more um, passive mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. gameplay. So what do you think? How do you think flow kind of ties into those kinds of things? Even if it's is it purely in just uncovering the story?
0: Um, That's a really good question. And you you said the word challenge, which I think is really important. And people, other scholars have defined flow as challenge-based immersion, right? That's what flow gives you when you've got a challenge you're trying to overcome. But it's not the only kind of immersion. There's immersion in narrative worlds, right? We get immersed in a novel when we read it because the world is so beautiful or um, the narrative is so beautiful. So there's other kinds of ways that we become involved or absorbed within media that we Consume and flow is just one challenge-based kind of it, right? So I think you're right. There are other video games, and especially in the indie space, where they're experimenting with other kinds of immersion that aren't necessarily flow-based, right? They're not about creating this intense involvement that's related to overcoming challenges, mm-hmm. you know. Or they're experimenting with easier challenges, you know, to overcome different kinds of maybe micro flow, um, which is a term, right? But yeah.
1: So Maybe this doesn't tie in as much with the subject of flow, but I am curious, and I think it's something that a lot of people have tried to examine, and I haven't really heard any concrete answer for so this is your chance <laughs> Braxton, to solve this great quandary that plagues us all but uh, a, a game like there's so many of them but the only example that comes to mind is something like night in the woods or something uh-huh. or like like an early LucasArts adventure game or uh-huh, something where uh-huh. it's like it's a very passive experience most of what you're doing is walking and talking to yeah. people mm-hmm. of course those early LucasArts games had some puzzle solving things as well True. but for the most part the, the core experience is walking and talking
0: right Firewatch another F- one. Firewatch
1: that's yeah. a perfect example yeah. yeah so with that kind of game does that qualify as more microflow and if so do you feel that these are kind of narratives that need to be told in game form do mm-hmm. they qualify as a game mm-hmm. if at the end of the day it's really just watching a movie while you push your character forward mm-hmm. you know yeah
0: like an interactive movie experience that yeah and the people you know quabble or that's not the right word. They, they, they,
1: uh, oh, I, uh, I keep my brain keeps wanting to say Scrabble. You got a bowl in my head, but 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 I I see what you're getting at. Squabble? They they quarrel. Yes, sure, (laughs) that works. They bicker. Yeah, uh,
0: (laughs) Um, yeah, uh, whether these things are games or not, and that gets into kind of lengthy uh, discussions about what is a game, what's not. There are rules that are embedded in the system of things you can or cannot do. Is challenge something that is important to a game or not? Or even if this is an interactive experience you know it's still sold as a video game on on some level so i'm actually personally i don't really care that much about is it a game or is it not a game um, I think that there's a lot of space for exploration of the expressive possibilities behind interactive technologies like games and some games like Journey or Firewatch are very cinematic right or or, or based on television um, uh, episodic right and you don't do a lot of challenging things you're more interested in the narrative and so there's these multimedia combinations between films and video games or television and video and video games and so Mm they are not really about challenge based flow, you know, but something else, right? right. But there people are kind of bored with that kind of challenge-based, you know, flow or model. And the video games are expanding into a huge artistic medium where people in the indie space uh, or other artists are creating amazing kind of new things that that are teaching us about different possibilities for what video games can do.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting Experiencing how the Medium ages But sorry You were going to say
0: Well I was going to say We did bring up Yeah I think I might have Misused the idea of Microflow or something Like that That was a Microflow is maybe Something that's related More to casual games Um, Microflow was something Like when we would be A Involved in a task just to give our everyday life a certain amount of order, like doodling, having a you know, or uh, people would smoke cigarettes and go outside, and and these were kind of small, short, little. You know activities that uh, me Holly claimed that helped organize her everyday lives. So casual gaming, for instance, right on our phones, mobile gaming. We play these games in short amounts of time and bursts of time for like five minutes or three minutes while we're in line at the grocery store, right? So these are similar kinds of microflow activities, right? Which are still very challenge-based, uh, but they're on a very short-term level. You're not, you know, playing a whole a whole three hours, right?
1: Right. No. I guess guess if i could kind of be blanket with it it's like mass effect versus 2048 i guess <laughs> yeah. as far as two dramatically different experiences yeah, yeah yeah so i guess in your book you also not only kind of analyze the relationship of video games and, and flow but also critique it as well uh-huh. um, it's not to say you're demonizing video <laughs> games that would be a very <laughs> weird stance for you to take given uh, right. your career but You acknowledge and delve into the fact that there is a, uh, I guess, two sides to that same coin. Yeah. Um, Yeah. If you want to get into that a bit.
0: Yeah. In the early days of researching flow, this was kind of known that it was, that it could be. Something that people got addicted to on some level. And Csikszentmihalyi was always interested in, in having people explore activities like poetry or uh, running. He was kind of anti technological, I would say, in like what a lot of what he talked about. He was vehemently opposed to television, for example. That hmm. was always something that he said created a kind of degraded flow experience. We'd get really absorbed in television, but he didn't think it was complex, right? And he never really talked about video games which is something I mentioned in the book it was something that was never really talked about because I think that you know he was uncertain about it because it was a commodity it was a product that was out there to use flow to profit off people getting addicted to it you right know? I mean look at look at the Addiction today in in the iPhone store the App Store you know on the market for casual games or mobile games uses addiction as a slogan. This yeah. game is so addicting. Yeah. I can't put it down, you know, the internet ads that we see. This game addicted me for, you know, 3 months, you know. Right. I love this game. It's so addicting. But so the discourse of addiction, right, is being used to market these games, which is strange because usually when we talk about addiction in a negative kind of way, right? So Flow has a complex relationship to that. You know, there's These questions of like, well, when does flow become addiction? You know, when are we always trying to get in this feeling of flow to the point where it takes over our lives?
1: Right. I mean, it's the kind of thing where, you know, you talk about addiction and and yes, digital tech uh, addiction is a very, very much a real thing for sure. And video game addiction too. You think about the fact that like, could the argument not be made that the things that I mean, well, it could because these things are proven to have existed, I suppose. But things that uh, uh, Mihaly
0: its a hard, it's super hard. To <laughs> <I> <laughs> you know, most articles <laughs> online will put in parentheses, you know, how to pronounce the name behind it. You don't see that usually. Oh, okay. Whenever his name is mentioned, you know, in a popular press article or something, they'll have his name in in you know phonetic spellings. So. Right. <laughs> see, that was the
1: kind of thing where when I was doing my research. I was like, I was like watching a couple like talks he gave, and yeah. like I was and I was doing some reading on him. And it was one of those things where I kept meaning to be like, "All right, I got to go back and learn that yeah. name before I go on air." Remember, remember to learn that name. Yeah. And then I walk into the station. And I was like, "Oh, I never learned
0: the name." Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it a little bit too. You know. You're at
1: some point. much more in the right ballpark than I am, though. I think we can we can certainly <laughs> attest to that. Um, but
0: you know, he likes the people. He can just call him Mike. He says that sometimes. Just call me Mike. <laughs> go with Mike.
1: You know, good old Mike. Um, he's uh, but you know, he makes the point that you said like uh. Flow can be found in things like running, mm-hmm. uh, or, or uh, you know, things like I guess, microflow and like smoking a cigarette, like you said as well. Cigarettes obviously addictive, but you know, running is as well. I mean, anything that can you know deliver endorphins right. to the brain in right. some respect can be addictive. Right. So, does that then contradict his point to a degree about um, flow being a positive thing mm-hmm. if he if he Acknowledges that flow in things like uh, television, I suppose, is is yeah. negative. Yeah. Um, does that contradict his point?
0: Um, I think he treated it as something that was real, that was out there in a the world. Like people experience this this feeling of flow and of being absorbed in a task, right? And different things can produce it. Different activities to produce or could produce this feeling. And I th- he th- I think he is he thought that society had to judge those things. Right. They had to look at them and be critical of some of them and be like, this isn't the best way to produce flow. You know, he would talk about buying s- snowmobiles. You know, and to use the Minnesota example right. <laughs> um, is probably not the best kind of long-term strategy for uh, feeling flow you know because they use a lot of resources mm-hmm. you know what I mean like if you can get f- this feeling of flow writing a poem you know why not do that instead of buying these huge expensive technological things that use energy that make a lot of noise etc etc right. uh, and so he was pointing out that society had to make judgments
1: I see so it's it's about it's about uh, it's about finding the right methods to receive that flow from, I guess, is, yeah. what, he's, is what he's getting at. Okay. I think so. So then, ultimately, I guess, you know, we are running low on time a little bit, but I do want to talk a bit about, because we, <laughs> we never actually really got into it, but what some of those negative examples of flow in gaming would be, um, mm-hmm. outside of, like, addiction as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you you one, one subject you're tackling as well is... Uh, addiction and things like gamification mm-hmm. in the workplace mm-hmm. without proper compensation, mm-hmm. um, which is becoming more and more rampant as well. Right. Yeah,
0: um. Yeah. I think one. Uh, I mean, this is when it gets kind of weird. You're right. Like, I have to think about... I study video games. I love video games. They're pleasurable. They're fun. There's a ton of positive things about them, but I also am critical of them and try to think of what their kind of negative impacts might be. And part of that also goes to um, thinking about the idea of play and playfulness. Mm. And the book's title is part of it is A Critique of Play, you know, which I think is kind of uh, something that is a little bit new because mostly we talk about play as something that's great you know, children go out and play outside you know, this is how children develop skills you know, this is how this play is a wonderful kind of positive thing, um, full of enjoyment, Um, and it's true it is, we love to play, right, maybe children more than adults (laughs) but in gamification are using kind of game design principles uh, outside of games, right to redesign a consumer experience at Panera, right with reward (laughs) points, or Starbucks, right, Right. Um, or other Forms of gamification. It has a altruistic goal: is to make things more enjoyable, or consumption more ex- enjoyable, or workers enjoying their work more. If you make a their work competitive against other people, right, They or uh, give them rewards for doing certain things correctly so they gain points and they can get some sort of reward later on, that might make them happier, right? But it also kind of makes their work more productive in a way um, that it's making them, it's turning their work into a game uh, so they do more work, mm-hmm. right? And then not necessarily compensating them for that increase in productivity. Right. So it's a moral question and people talk about it like this it's like is it is it okay to make life and work more enjoyable for the worker I mean who's gonna argue against that right. you know what I mean I mean it's a yeah right I mean this is part of what chick Semi Holly wanted to do we wanted to bring the idea of play and enjoyment to things like work and to to make it part of the equation when we were doing work to make it more because people would look at work as something horrible that they had to do and their free time was on the weekends. Instead he wanted to make work fun. Right. But it can be used again in a way that, you know, workers are think that they're playing and they're just working all the time.
1: And it's like um even uh as a similar example is in a lot of uh you know big tech companies yeah. and video game companies, you know, they'll they'll have the big slide in the office mm-hmm. and they got the soccer field, yep. and the foosball tables. Yep. Oh, we have fun here. We don't believe in walls, blah, yeah. like that kind of thing. But, yeah. but end of the day, it's like, uh, you know, are you guys ready to work a 60 hour work week? Yeah. That's the, yeah. You know? <laughs> like, like it's, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's, when, like, when are you going to have time to use these things? Oh, well, I still have them. So my office is fun. Yeah. Qu- question mark.
0: Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah.
1: And so, yeah, it is, um, noble idea in theory. Theory, mm-hmm. And in practice, it probably can be noble. Mm-hmm. But right now, I have to question to what end it is. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah I think that yeah, if we think in terms of history, the idea of work and play, work and leisure have always been separated from each other, at least in the modern period. Uh, and now things are blurring between mm-hmm. those two things. You know, we want to be have casual work days or we want our work to be more fun and we want it to be creative and we want to be innovative within our work and at the same time some of our games are more like work grinding to level up our characters you know spending hours and hours and hours in some of these games doing little tasks just so we can get some gear or some sort of new weapon or some sort of new skill Mm -hmm. that's work. You, you know at, what I mean? Yeah,
1: you know, like Red Dead. And you, it's like hunt so you can survive and it, keep playing the game. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So these categories are blurring a right. little bit, and as a society, I think that we're trying to figure out how to navigate right that blurring those right. two things. So. Interesting.
1: Well, unfortunately, yeah, we are. We are very much low on time here so we are gonna have to cut this but uh but before we go i do want to just add a couple things um so so first of all the books both their working titles right now are intelligent visions the platform cultures of intellivision and the flowing subject video games and the ideology of play and we can expect those roughly roughly what's the ballpark right now for those to release
0: um well the flowing subject will probably be out a year from now i mean the date right now is probably october 2020 so a long time i suppose it takes a long time to make books and the other one will probably come out um shortly after that i suppose or maybe another year after that so a little okay. a little bit
1: great well yeah excited to see them then and then also if you know because this is this is campus radio, so Mm -hmm. uh, plenty of students, you're a professor here at UCI, Uh, are you
0: teaching any classes in the coming year
1: that students can register for?
0: Um. yeah I mean I'm not teaching anything in the fall uh, unfortunately but in in, uh, I'll be teaching a class on virtual reality which will be really exciting uh, in the spring quarter and then in the winter quarter I'll be te- teaching a class on vintage video games I think oh. Right. and so it's called retro games I think and so this will be about in television research and uh, uh, stuff I've researched about the Atari and my book project so it's going to be stuff i know a lot about we'll play a lot of old games but we'll also play new games right that are designed to look and feel retro like you were talking about right Mm
1: -hmm. okay well great yeah so if you uh were intrigued by the like 25 minutes we we delved into that subject (laughs) you can get a a full uh quarter of it so definitely keep, keep an eye out for that is that going to be in the won't be in the film and media department. What department would that be? That will be film and oh, media. Oh, that will science. be film and media. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, great. Winter, winter quarter. Okay, mm-hmm. great. I'm gonna try to sign up for that. That yeah. sounds that sounds great. Um, yeah, that will be fun for okay. sure. Awesome. Well Braxton, aka <laughs> Professor <laughs> Soderman, uh, you didn't—you didn't kill me during this interview. Like, like you ominously warned may happen. So, uh, we both came out of this winners. So, sweet, great. Uh, <laughs> hey, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank
0: it. you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. Thank awesome. you. Thanks
1: a lot. Right.
0: Mattel Electronics
1: presents